One, two, one, two, three, four. Welcome to the Sales Hacker Podcast. This is going to be an amazing episode. This is episode 20, and we've got Chris Foss, author of Never Split the Difference, on the show. Chris is uh, world famous at this point and an incredible uh, insight on uh, on negotiating. Now, we've got uh, not one, but two sponsors to thank, uh, the, the two sponsors that we've had for a couple weeks now, so we love their support. Thank you. The first is Aircall. Aircall is a phone system designed for the modern sales team. Uh, one of the things that uh, Jeff Reekers, head of marketing at Aircall, wanted me to know and mention was that it's for the field team and the inside sales team. So it can be deployed anywhere that you are because they've got great mobile integrations. They seamlessly integrate into your CRM. They eliminate data entry for your reps, and they give you greater visibility into your team's performance through advanced reporting. So if you're a rep, it's real easy to use. And if you're a manager, you get insight into what's happening on the phone. When it's time to scale, you can add new lines in minutes and you use in-call coaching to reduce ramp time for your reps. So visit aircall.io forward slash sales hacker to see why Uber, Dun & Bradstreet, Pipedrive, and thousands of others trust Aircall for their most critical sales conversations. Our second sponsor is Outreach.io, the leading sales engagement platform. So Outreach triples the productivity of sales teams and empowers them to drive predictable and measurable revenue growth. By prioritizing the right activities and scaling customer engagements with intelligent automation, Outreach makes customer-facing teams more effective and improves visibility into what really drives results. Hop over to outreach.io forward slash sales hacker to see how thousands of customers, including Cloudera, Glassdoor, Pandora, and Zillow, rely on Outreach to deliver higher revenue per sales rep. And um, without further ado, let's listen to Chris Voss on the Sales Hacker Podcast. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Sales Hacker Podcast. It's your host, Sam Jacobs. I'm the founder of the New York Revenue Collective, as hopefully you know at this point. And today we've got uh, somebody that I'm incredibly excited about. We've got Chris Foss. Chris is the author of Never Split the Difference, which has been, uh, I was mentioning offline to Chris, at this point, one of the sort of standard reading texts for negotiation uh, in the sales community. Chris is formerly an FBI hostage negotiator, and he's the founder and principal of the Black Swan Group, which is the consulting and professional services organization that Chris started to deploy some of the strategies and tactics that he articulates and Never Split the Difference out to the rest of the global community. So Chris, welcome, and thanks so much for your time. My pleasure, Sam. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So to some people, you're a household name and to others, you may not be. So um, it would be really helpful, I think, for our for our listeners to hear a little bit about your background and sort of go back to some of the experiences in the FBI as a hostage negotiator that prompted uh, the writing of the book, Never Split the Difference. Sure. Yeah. I mean, originally, I know my accent doesn't sound like it, um, but I'm a small town guy from Iowa son of uh, Richard Joyce Voss, Mount Pleasant, <laughs> Iowa. The building I worked in in New York City had more people in it than the town I grew up in. Wow. Uh, How did you find your way from Iowa to New York City? You know, kind of, <laughs> I remember my hometown newspaper asked me that question when I was back for a high school reunion a number of years ago. And, you know, the journey is so complicated. I just said, you know, basically you go up to Interstate 80 and you make a right. <laughs> There are a number of uh, uh, pit stops and uh, and roadblocks on the way. Yeah. What, what was the experience that got you into the FBI originally, and when was when was that happening? Well, I was uh, I was a police officer in Kansas City, Missouri. My father started to encourage me to look at federal law enforcement because he had just paid for a college degree, and I went out and got a job that didn't need one. 
And so, you know, so he was, he, I think he finally accepted that I was going to stay in law enforcement. And so we thought, well, federal must be more prestigious, more challenging, you know, whatever uh, the outsider's view is. And he encouraged me to look at the secret service and they weren't hiring, but the guy that I spoke to at the service said, you know, I travel all over the world with the secret service. And, you know, I grew up in Iowa. I mean, I, I, I'd seen Canada. That was the extent of my international travels. So the thought of people paying to let me go all over the world sounded pretty cool. And I didn't know one federal law enforcement agency from the other. I saw an article in a paper the FBI was hiring. I went down and they had a big hiring push. And 10 months later, I was in. And so you started as a as a special agent. Uh, is that accurate? And I guess, how did you find your way from uh, entering the FBI to becoming a hostage negotiator and to being in some of those sort of high pressure situations? Yeah, you know, OK, so if you're if, if you sworn law enforcement, uh, a defense attorney's favorite question was special agent Voss, what makes you special? <laughs> and, you know, so we had to understand that an agent is somebody who's not authorized to carry a gun and a special agent gets to carry a gun. Wow. And so the FBI only has special agents. And so you start out as a special agent and everybody does. And then you might pick up an additional duty. There are a number of things you could pick up. You could be a SWAT guy. I originally was a SWAT guy. I was on an FBI SWAT team. You could become a hostage negotiator. You could be a bomb tech. You could be an undercover. There's, that's kind of the extent of it. Uh, I started out in SWAT. I, I re-injured an old knee injury from uh, my college days. And I realized that instead of continuing to blow my knee out, training, which is how I did it, you know, I knew we had hostage negotiators. They respond along with the SWAT guys. I thought, you know, that'd be cool. I could try that. How hard could it be? Talking to terrorists, how hard could that be? <laughs> you know, the, 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 that's that's just short of the rednecks famous last words of, hey, watch this. Right. <laughs> How hard could it be? How hard could, we, Well, you would find out. How well, hard was it? It was so hard. No, you know, it was actually it was in depth. I mean, there was so much more. It's emotional intelligence is what it is. The application of emotional intelligence and the study of it and diving deep into it. And it, it, it was more satisfying than SWAT ever was. And I and I love being on the SWAT team. Don't get me wrong. That's a cool gig. That's an adrenaline high on a regular basis. But there was there's something eminently satisfying about um, doing something with your words, just your words, getting people to, to completely turn around what they're doing. And how many years did you do that? Well, I was an MP agent for a total of 24 years. And uh, basically the last... I got trained as a hostage negotiator in 1992, so to 2007. Um, but, they, you know, you do it at sort of different levels. I mean, first you start out as a negotiator in a field office with it as an additional duty. And then I was put in charge of the team in New York City. I, was, I became a, a member of the team in New York and then was put in charge of the team. And it was de facto a full-time job when I, when I took over the team, but it wasn't technically. And then every agency's negotiators are pretty much do it as an additional duty. I hate to use the term part-time because that diminishes it. But then they always have a core group of full-timers. And the FBI's full-time negotiators are Quantico, the mystical Quantico. <laughs> and I got transferred there, and I spent the last seven years of my career doing nothing but hostage negotiation. Wow. 
So you mentioned a number of different, I think every, every chapter almost starts with sort of like a description of a specific instance, and then yeah. it relays the lessons back from that instance. What were, what were sort of one or two of your most representative or most interesting situations that you can share with the audience? Well, you know, I talk early on in the book, I talk about a hostage taking at the Chase Manhattan Bank in Brooklyn. And uh, even though bank robberies with hostages and negotiation happens in every law enforcement movie, in reality, they only happen in the entire country about once every 20 years. Bank robbers make it a point to get out of there before they get trapped. That's why there's almost never a negotiation. So in the one that I did in New York, it had been 20 years since one had been done in New York. Wow. And But you show up with a certain amount of expectations. You, you show up and expect the people that are trapped in a bank to be a little rattled that it wasn't their plan to get caught in a bank. And this guy that we negotiated with initially, when, and there were two of them inside, he was actually the prototype of the great CEO negotiator. And what makes me say that? A great influential CEO negotiator, if they go to the table at all, they're going to hide their influence. They'll only use plural pronouns. They'll talk about, you know, I got a team, my board of directors, those guys, I'm accountable to them. You know, I'm not really in charge. You know, it's the board of directors. Uh, it's a tactic one person in business once referred, told me was referring to people that are not in the room. Well, this bank robber, from the very beginning, he was like, I'm, you know, these other guys are more dangerous than me. I'm actually scared of the guys I'm with. I don't know what they're going to do. He was in charge. He was driving the whole situation, but he was smart enough to hide his influence when he was talking to us, which is what a great CEO will do. This guy was this guy was so calm that he literally said the first negotiator on the phone with him was a PD guy named Joe, who was a great negotiator. And uh, he literally says to Joe, I'm the calmest one here. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, who are we talking to on the other side? What, what, what is going on? He was just he was a smart, shrewd, great negotiator. So when you show up in those situations, obviously, I mean, the, the goal writ large is obviously get everybody out of there safely. Never split and, the difference, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, and uh, I guess arrest the bad guys. Um, but how do you get from just showing up on the scene with a phone call or a telephone in your hand to that outcome? What are some of the key strategies? Some people say, what's the difference between business negotiation and hostage negotiation? And one of my answers is, in business negotiations, people get a lot more upset than they ever do in hostage negotiation. If you can imagine that. Yeah. Um, the so stakes are so much higher in a hostage negotiation. Well, the stakes are much higher. So you would expect people to be more upset, right? Yeah. How are they less upset? Your question was, what is our strategy? Our strategy from the very beginning is we know with our tone of voice, we can take charge without the other side knowing it. And in hostage negotiation, we referred to it as the late night FM DJ voice. <laughs> Are we hearing it right now? Well, I would never <laughs> use that on you in this negotiation. <laughs> I would, I wouldn't do that to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've been wanting to hear in by practice by a master the late night FM DJ voice since I read the book. So I'm so <laughs> that was beautiful. There's a little what bit of a sample of it, yeah. <laughs> what does the tonality do? How does well, it how does it influence the counterparty? It hits their mirror neurons. Everybody's got in their head something which we refer to as mirror neurons. And you hit somebody's mirror neurons if they can either hear you or see you. 
And with the late night FM DJ voice, what it does is it reaches in and flips a switch in a mirror neurons that actually slows the brain down. Now we thought it was calming people down, but we didn't realize it was calming them down by slowing them down. And that's why people don't yell at hostage negotiators because the hostage negotiator, it's an involuntary response on you can't, you cannot block me from hitting your mirror neurons. Now you can fight the reaction, but you can't stop me from starting the reaction. And I can change how fast your brain moves. And consequently, we now know in neuroscience, I can actually affect the chemicals that your body is releasing into your brain that impacts your thinking based on my tone of voice. If you can see me or if you can hear me, I can hit your mirror neurons and I can begin to hit them before I finish my first sentence. Wow. So job one, when you show up on the scene, obviously everybody's rattled. First thing is to slow everything down and to start triggering those mirror neurons. Is that accurate? Yeah, you slow it down and the other side doesn't know you're doing it. That's the key to it because you don't want to engage in an overt a waste of time or an overt stalling tactic. You want the other side to feel like they're in control. You don't want them to know you're in control. The secret to gaining the upper hand in a negotiation is giving the other side the illusion of control. And so we want to establish the upper hand while the other side feels like they're in control, which is the essence of every great hostage negotiation, every great business negotiation. So the essence is making them feel like they're in control. But then what are some of the beyond just tone of voice? What are the other strategies that you employ? I guess the other question I have, which is which is a broader question, is, you know, what's your overall philosophy to negotiation? Are you sort of like a win-win kind of person where you say, let's find the outcome that everybody wins from? Or is I, I would assume that maybe you have a different point of view. And then from there, I would love to know, like, what are the tactics that you use to get there? Well, I, I tweaked that a little bit because um, I'm, I'm leery of the terminology win-win for two reasons. Number one, people who try really hard to practice win-win often get sheared like sheep. <laughs> and they get sheared by the, the throat cutter on the other side because the throat cutter will say, you know what, let's have a win-win deal. Like I know my experience is the sooner somebody says win-win to me, the sooner they mean I want to win everything. <laughs> They're going to high anchor. They're trying to get me to drop my guard by seeming to be collaborative. So if you're practicing it, there's a real good, and you're thinking it, you're, you, there's a real good chance you're vulnerable. If you're saying it, you're probably a shark. Now, I do want to create a better deal than either side ever imagined. You know, I want you to get stuff out of this that you're delighted by. I also want to get a lot for me. I just, you know, the delightful stuff is not necessarily at my expense or at your expense. There's always, there's always a better deal. There's always a better deal. And because people are always hiding stuff. I mean, I, when we're training train negotiations, I say, have you ever been in a negotiation where you weren't holding information back? And people will say like, no, no, of course. You know, there's always stuff we're holding back. Of course, we always have vulnerabilities. Well, if you're holding it, holding it back, that means it's valuable. And if you're always holding stuff back, that means the other side is too. Which means you don't know on the stuff that I'm hiding and the stuff that you're hiding. There's an overlap on those hidden areas that could be phenomenal if we can get to them. If you're willing to accept that, there's always a better deal at the table. And, and so I have always, my overriding goal is to uncover the best possible deal and then decide if I want to make it. So that's what I'm really trying to do. I'm trying to get you 
I'm trying to get you to trust me for good reason, not because I'm trying to hurt you. But I need to know what you're hiding. And if I can find out what you're hiding, we can come up with a better deal and you're going to love it. What are the tactics you use to figure out what people are hiding? Well, and, and so you're asking me, what's the, what's the information gathering process? Um, because information gathering is critical. And we're all taught we have to gather information. The problem is we think we have to gather information by asking questions. And that's the most effective way to gather information only about a third of the time. Because there's something about the questioning process that causes the other side to raise their guard. So we train people to be able to toggle back and forth between well-calibrated questions. You know, what we refer to as calibrated questions are principally what and how questions. First of all, I didn't even bother with yes at all. Yes is the most useless answer that anybody could ever give you. Because there's three kinds of yeses, commitment, confirmation, and counterfeit. People are so used to being trapped by the confirmation yes that they're real good at counterfeit yes. So counterfeit yes is just a lie. A counterfeit yes is a lie. I know you're trying to trap me, so I'm going to say yes because I want to hear what you have to say. Okay. It's to get you talking. Because most people are yes addicts, and they hear the word yes, and then they start running off at the mouth. Well, you know, uh, Jim Camp, who wrote Start With No, used to call it spilling the beans. <laughs> um, people just, if they hear yes, they start to spill the beans. I, I don't bother with it because people are so good at counterfeit yes. And then also, yes is nothing without how. Even if you're giving me a legitimate yes, by itself, it doesn't mean a thing unless I get how. So why do I even bother with yes? when I need how. So I'm going to get, I'm going to go to how and what are my calibrated questions? Principally, what's going on here? How do we proceed? What matters to you? Stuff like that. But now the problem is what happens if they don't like questions or they can't give good answers? I actually need to trigger some unguarded responses. And that's what our whole design of labels is. You know, a label is designed to trigger thinking and get an unguarded answer. Let me give you an example. A company we're coaching who's in a construction business recently, they sense that there's one of two executives on the other side of the table that are not at the table but are causing problems. Let's call these executives Joe and Bob. They could say, you know, what are the obstacles here? You know, uh, who's on board from your team? They could ask a whole series of questions. Or what they did was they used a label and they said, it seems like Joe and Bob are the obstructions. And the immediate involuntary response from the other side was, no, it's not Joe, it's Bob. So the label hits people, and it's, it's an observation. And particularly if your observation is slightly off, people love to correct. And you want to get an honest, unguarded answer, you're most likely to get it in a correction. Because people, if I'm correcting you, I'm safe, I'm secure, I'm superior, I'm smarter than you. And when I feel all of those things is when I'm most likely to tell you the truth because I don't have my guard up. And that's when people say, no, it's not Joe, it's Bob. Because it triggers their feelings of superiority, which then causes them to tell the truth. Now, that's information gathering, but not asking a question. So is, would you say that sort of like the labeling process, you mentioned that questions, specifically how and what, which are calibrated questions, they're about one third of the information gathering process. Is these other techniques like labeling, would that be the balance of the two thirds? Yeah. If we're, if we're really in information gathering, I'm going to probably switch over and use a lot more labels to trigger your answers than I am going to use questions. I'll use an occasional question, 
I, you know, I may really design a question such that if you have a goal and I have a goal, I'll say, you want X and I want Y. And I'm going to say, well, how am I supposed to give you Y if I don't get X? One of the things in sales we talk about or I talk about is this need for approval construct, which is just a way of saying uh, sometimes people are self-conscious about offending the counterparty. They're self-conscious about asking a question that is perceived to be too aggressive or too salesy. When you ask a labeling question, I imagine that one part of the emotional response from the other side could potentially be emotional in nature, saying like, no way, man, you got it all wrong. So how do you manage the emotional temperature in the room as you're in the information gathering process? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and one of the things about labels is that it automatically helps manage that temperature is if a label gives you the option of responding, you don't feel backed into a corner. You know, if I, if I make a label as an observation, as you think about it, you decide whether or not you want to respond. Having an option preserves your autonomy, increases the chance that you're going to respond. Camp's books start with no. The entire premise of that book was give people their autonomy and they're more likely to cooperate. His idea of start with no was not actually what we do, which is intentionally trigger no. His idea was sit down with a counterpart and he had a lot of sales experience. And he would start out by saying like, look, you can say no at any time. I want you to know that you could, anytime that you say no to me, I am happy to stop and go away. And he said, you know, he called his definition of negotiation was giving the other side the right to veto. And this was giving the other side the right to veto, the right to say no right away. And, and he, he found from his experience that as soon as you gave people the right to say no, they were more likely to say yes. As soon as you give them options, they don't feel backed into a corner. Their autonomy is preserved. They're more likely to cooperate. So that's the design of the label. The label, if I say, you know, seems like Joe with Tom, you know, Joe and Bob are the problems here. I'm not asking you for an answer, so if you give me an answer, it's completely at your option. And you're more likely to answer because I've preserved your autonomy. You feel respected. You feel appreciated. You feel in charge. I'm triggering all these emotions simultaneously because they're always there and they're always affecting what you're thinking is anyway. Would you say that stage one, essentially, is information gathering? And once you feel like you have the right amount of information, what's the process by which, within a negotiation, you move from having the information to deploying that information successfully to achieve, to your point, a better outcome for all of the participants. All right. So let me ask you a question while we're getting into this, because we haven't had this conversation, but I got, I have a feeling that our thinking is the same. You said stage one, how many stages do you typically see in the life cycle of an interaction? Well, that is a good question. You know, if we're talking about my world is the world of sales and in the life cycle of that interaction, which might be like a sales cycle, there's probably discovery, which is sort of the, the similar to information gathering. Then there's sort of presentation. Then there's kind of like negotiation and then there's closure. Now there's little micro steps in between procurement and legal and things like that. But I'd say generally about four or five. Okay, right, right. Some, somewhere more than one Somewhere less than five, right? Yeah, exactly. All right, so um, the number we swag, scientific wild-ass guess. <laughs> All right? You know, and, and you got to understand, these are technical terms. We got technical yeah. terms. Hey, I, pay you more, I pay you more for a technical term. You know, if you say swag, that's, that's a higher day rate right there. <laughs> yeah, there you go, right? And you know the difference between, you know, there's a wag and there's a swag. 
<laughs> so the swag is some data point that you're using to anchor the uh, the right, right. wild ass gas. <laughs> a wild ass gas and a scientific wild ass gas, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> so, but the, you know, it's interesting. I mean, so we see about three. Like, uh, and the first time that I, I started the, uh, seeing this dynamic of three, because in the book we talk about the Ackerman bargaining technique, and it's based on three uh, rounds of bargaining to co close the deal. And, you know, I see this in human behavior. It's a cliche, but if you're dating, in a, if you're dating and the dating is getting serious, what do people start to expect to have happen on about the third date? Uh, they expect to make love with each other. Intimacy. <laughs> right? Yeah. But about along about the third day, right? Yeah. Three rounds of bargaining. We do a lot of work in real estate, advising people in real estate. What happens when people are looking at houses? First time they go out and they see a house, they're kind of blown away. They love it. You know, they're really interested. A real estate agent that expects an offer on a, on a first view of a house is wrong. Every real estate agent knows the second time to take the buyer out to see the house. Now the buyer is going to start to see all the flaws, the stuff that they missed from the uh, blown away by the initial curb appeal on the first visit. If they want that buyer to make an offer, they can't stop there because in the second, the second visit, they saw all the flaws. They got to go out and they got to see the third time. And that's when they, they expect to have an offer to be made. So it's this interesting dynamic, you know, and your guess was, Actually, what you laid out in your four or five, uh, first, first couple things would take place in a first stage. You also said that you realized that there were sort of smaller portions in each stage, which is why I think you, were, you went to like four to five. depends upon where you're going to lump stuff in. We're going to look for this dynamic of three in our interaction. So what we're going to try to do in the first is the information gathering phase. And then we're expecting problems in around the second phase. Second phase is when you're getting down to business, but don't look to close before you're getting on to about the third phase. And if you're not making a lot of progress by the third phase, where if you're not going to close, you're, you feel like you're close to closing, you're now wasting your time. So information gathering, then it's sort of the second phase would be the exposure of the flaws or maybe the first phase is sort of innocent optimism. Then the second is yeah. uh, realism. And then the third is coming to coming together to form a more perfect union <laughs> exactly <laughs> now what are we left with are we going to consummate <laughs> very good just, i didn't you know i didn't i didn't pick that term for deals everybody talks about consummating deals don't they yeah well it makes a lot of sense when you're out there i mean so you left the fbi is 2007 is that right yes and did you form the black swan group immediately after and you know, you've been consulting, you mentioned real estate. So what are some of the clients that you work with? And I guess my big question is, you've come into so many different kinds of negotiations. I'm sure there's one, two or three sort of top glaring mistakes that people generally make in the context of a negotiation that you wish they would stop. So what are those key mistakes that if we all just stopped doing that, we'd all be better off? Yeah, okay. All right, so first part of that, I, you know, I left the FBI... I uh, went back to school as, uh, and got a master's degree as a way to sort of transition out of government service into private service. It's kind of like, like going into a witness security program for a little while. I needed, <laughs> I needed a buffer. Yeah. I couldn't just leave the government without some sort of protection. And then I founded the, the, the Black Swan Group sort of all at the same time. But although I technically founded 
Black Swan Group in 2008. We didn't really try to get busy later in the year. And then I started teaching in, in, at Harvard and then at Georgetown business negotiation almost right away, which helped us develop the doctrine. And then also the great thing about teaching in, in, in a business school is you got people from every aspect of business that you get a road test of skills in. It's a laboratory. And I, you know, I made almost all my students were part-time, which means they worked during the day. They had real jobs in every industry, every ethnicity. Proof of concept was whether they were in government service, whether they were in real estate, whether they manage uh, high wealth individuals. If you're getting a business degree, we got to teach in every aspect of business. And we found out that it, that it worked in every field and it worked with every ethnicity. The same, the same emotional intelligence skills worked across the board. So what are the biggest mistakes people make? Being yes addicts, you know, the yes momentum or yesable agreements or momentum selling. So that and that specifically means sort of like asking a bunch of questions that it's very easy for the counterparty to say yes to. Those yeses are likely counterfeit yeses or some other kind of right. yes. They don't tell enough. And so you're sort of lulled into this idea that everything's going great, but you're missing huge pieces of information that's not going great. Is that? Yeah. And I think it's the single biggest destroyer of relationships. I think it's if anybody out there has got people that are not getting back to them, which we refer to as non-responders, you got a non-responder, you've been trying to yes trap them. You might have even and you might have even been engaged in this yes process, not trying to trap them. I mean, you're just trying to confirm, but you're laying out argument, you know, you know, tell me what your goals are. So from I understand your goal is this X. I mean, other people have used that same phrase to trap people. Everybody begins to back away. It's, it's the biggest eroder of trust in a relationship, the constant use of yes. So, for example, like, would you say this is a problem that you face? And then the person says yes. And then you sort of check a little box thinking that you're, you've made some progress when, in fact, you've probably hurt yourself. Yeah, you, you've just done something that has caused them to mistrust you because the snake oil salesman did that and trapped them. You know, the old saying, once bitten, twice shy, or another example of that is once bitten by a snake, you're afraid of ropes. <laughs> I hadn't heard that one, but very good. Okay. Yeah. You know, you, uh, you try to hug a battered child. That battered child is going to flinch, even though you meant to hug them. I mean, you, you can't change the fact that everybody you deal with is already yes battered. And getting out of that is going is, is to be a huge plus up to start with. And then the other thing is, since so many people want the deal, I think not getting deals is the biggest cancer on people's time that everybody is faced with. Like we spend so much more time now diagnosing whether or not there's a deal there. And we didn't even put it in the book as much because I didn't realize how big the problem was until we've gotten out here and we've been working much more with business people across the board, salespeople. There's a saying in sales that the sin isn't not getting the deal. The sin is to take a long time to not get the deal. Yeah. Maybe no response is the worst answer. No is yes is the best response. No is the second best and nothing at all is terrible. Yeah. And that's, 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 uh, you know, I'm, I was talking to uh, uh, the CEO of a very large security firm just yesterday and he said, my salespeople, I ask them when something is going to close. I ask them if something's going to close. And they say, yeah, it's going to close. And I ask them when. And they say, I don't know. 
<laughs> and he looked at me and he said, if they say I don't know, they're lying to themselves. I got to get them to stop lying to themselves. And I said, well, you promise your people are yes addicted. And in this yes addiction, they're getting caught in these endless loops of never. They've got some negotiations, deals, sales on their books that they've got listed is going to close and it's never going to close. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that is every minute they waste on that deal is keeping them from deals that they could close. That is a very common piece of feedback for salespeople. And of course, the counter argument or the problem is maybe they don't have enough deals to feel to feel confident about uh, about letting a few go because then then they have to face with the the gaps in the pipeline. Um, Yeah, that's a scary place to be. And so many people are in that position. And the idea of cutting off the opportunity, but there's no opportunity there. And what we've seen on a regular basis, the sooner people get out of those deals that never close, the sooner they get into deals that will close. But you can't feel that at the time. Hope is supposed to be a good word. Hope will take you hostage. And so many people are the hostage of hope that it's killing Let me ask you uh, a different question. So hostage negotiation and a lot of your negotiation is face-to-face, you know, two people. Or or it's it's at least using power of the voice so it's on the phone or it's face to face but email and kind of written communication is such a massive part of how sales is conducted these days and a lot of the audience out there that's listening to this they do a lot of work over email and so i guess the question is how many of these strategies are specific to you know for example, you could ask a bunch of uh, calibrating questions and you could do a bunch of labeling, but doing labeling over email from, I don't know, my assumption is it would be less effective. So how do you have to modify the strategy, if at all, when you're using written communication, which is asynchronous, which is the, the person receiving it can respond whenever they feel like it, not in that moment? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. And here's, this is the other thing that, that sort of stuns me and stuns everybody when they take step back and look at it is the things that everybody does while simultaneously detesting having it done to them like you get a long email do you read that baby i i do not right and how many people send long emails many many people still do nearly everybody who hates getting long emails sends them and you know the analogy that i use that we like to use is if you were playing chess over them through via email, would you put your next seven moves in one email? No, because the the player on the other side is going to look at all those moves, decide which ones they don't like, and then go off on a tangent on whichever one of those moves you don't like. And that's that's what's the problem with laying out everything in an email. So you can use these strategies if you just Use them one at a time in an email. Break your emails down. Make actual progress. Well, I'm in a hurry. I can't do that. I don't have time to send seven emails. So I'd rather spend a half an hour writing one email that will never get responded to. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, when you lay it out like that, it's certainly uh, the logic is uh, is compelling and irrefutable, as they say. Yeah, it's, it's nuts, but everybody is so guilty of that. So, so, yeah, this stuff is transferable in email. First, you break it down to small bites. And secondly, then realizing simultaneously that emails always come off either much colder or more, more harsh than the voice you had in your head when you wrote them. 
So you add in you add in a couple of other things to lighten the email up. And then the super counterintuitive thing that we teach people is most people open their email with something positive and then get down to business. Now, the last impression is the lasting impression. So write your email, put a couple things in it, and whatever wonderful positive thing you opened with, take it, copy and paste it, and put it at the end of the email because that's going to be what resonates in the reader's mind. If you've written a short email, they'll get to the end. And the last impression is a lasting impression, which means it sets up your next interaction. Do you take your wonderfully positive greeting and put it at the end and maybe start your email with saying like, look, I'm going to get right down to business here. Boom. One or two things. And then the end is, you know, how's your family? How's your kids? You watch a ball game last night? Or I like, I like, you know, integrity and positivity at the end of the email. If you're emailing somebody, you're hoping you can do great business together. And that's a great last line of your email. I'm really hoping we make a great deal. This email was designed so that we have a long-term prosperous relationship. And that's going to be utterly true and utterly positive. And the other side's going to love it. And it's a great way to end. That's a great, very specific tip. It's been awesome talking to you, Chris. The So if I were to summarize, but but again, I just want to make sure that the folks out there, the most important thing that anybody can do is go on, is Amazon your preferred bookseller? Um, I get to get the best price on Amazon. I buy buy my book on Amazon. You buy it three times a day just to make sure it stays up there. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) The book is called Never Split the Difference. Chris Voss is the author. If we were to summarize, you know, the overall strategy, when we say never split the difference, tell us in your words what that means. And, and also, I've, I've got another another resource I'd like to share with everybody, too, before we get done. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, never split the difference. The counterintuitive part of that, too, is the other side might have a better idea than you do. So never split the difference is be willing to completely hear the other side out. And, you know, don't let your ego get so attached to what you want that it causes your failure, which is a paraphrase of a Colin Powell saying from way back when. You know, the other side might be right. Splitting the difference, an example we use in a book, I got on a suit. I don't know whether wear brown shoes or black shoes, so I split the difference. I put on one black and one brown. <laughs> the blending of two different ideas is yeah, so often a bad idea. You know, the blending of two different ideas is like you're trying to design a horse. You need a horse, you end up with a giraffe. That's splitting the difference. You know, it just doesn't work out. So be willing to hear the other side out. If you project that you're open to their ideas, you're going to be stunned at how much more open to your ideas they will be. Uh, it's, it's the old Covey advice of seek first to understand, then be understood. Let's say Covey was a mercenary. He didn't want to understand the other side first because he was a nice guy. He wanted to understand first because he wanted to get his point across. So how do you do that? You actually show the other side that you understand. Show them that you're open to their ideas feed their ideas back to them, summarize them, let them know that you heard them out, let them know you understood. That's when you get your point across. That's when you get your deals. I love it. Wise words. So what you mentioned another resource besides your book, what were you going to say? You know, I got to tell you, we put out a a weekly uh, newsletter called The Edge and it's free. It's complimentary. Uh, I had a colleague of mine at the FBI, federal government employee used to like to say, if it's free, I'll take three. (laughs) There you go. I love it. So how do you sign up for The Edge? The easiest way is to send via text. We got a text to sign up function. 
You text the, uh, the message FBI empathy, all one word. Your autocorrect is going to want to make it two words. Make sure it's one word, FBI empathy. Send that text to the number 22828. Again, the number is 22828. You get a dialogue box. And that newsletter comes out once a week. It's short and sweet. It's Tuesday mornings. It tees you up. It's kind of like a warm-up for the day. It's also the gateway to our website. Uh, there are training announcements in there. There's information about free material. It'll take you right to the website when you, whenever you need to, which is blackswanltd.com. But if you subscribe to The Edge, that's the gateway to everything. So that's your, your preferred. If people want to get in touch with you, you'd prefer they subscribe to The Edge by, by texting FBI Empathy, all one word, to 22828. Is that accurate? Exactly. <laughs> Perfect. That's right. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much for participating. I, I think the book has been has had a big impact on the sales community. You've had a big impact, and uh, and we love the lessons that you're teaching us. So thanks very much. My pleasure, Th Sam. Thanks for having me on. Take care. This is Sam's corner. was was pretty awesome to be able to talk to Chris Foss the author of Never Split the Difference and the founder of the Black Swan Group. Um, listen to Chris and uh, sign up for his newsletter. I think he said you can text FBI Empathy to 22828 and you'll get a response, which is a very 2018 way of signing up for a newsletter. But here's the thing that there's a number of great things that uh, that Chris articulated in this podcast, and I would I would definitely encourage everybody to go read the book, which is awesome. But uh, one of the things that, that I really liked about what he said is just the concept of yes, the word yes as, an, as a response to a question that you're asking being a negative thing, not a positive thing, because you're going to get uh, counterfeit yeses. You're going to get people saying yes when they don't really mean it. You're going to assume, if you're a new salesperson, you're going to assume that everything's moving uh, according to your plan when, in fact, uh, you're just getting a response people are conditioned to provide to help move along in the conversation. And so what, what Chris suggests is using calibration questions like how or what, and then using labeling, which is making specific statements and then letting the audience react to them. But the word yes is often not very helpful. Uh, so. When you've when you've got uh, when you're in a sales conversation and you're hearing yes a lot, don't get what Dave Curlin likes to call happy ears. Don't just assume that everything's going to go perfectly. Use different types of questions to uh, to get to the right answer. Uh, uh, Chris mentioned a book written by uh, Jim Camp called The Power of No. That's another uh, sort of reference that Chris provided, and everybody can check out that book as well. But the point is that uh, don't just assume everything's moving according to plan when you hear that word yes, because often the word no can be even more powerful. This has been Sam's Corner. Thanks so much for listening. To check out the show notes, see upcoming guests, and play more episodes from our incredible lineup of sales leaders, visit saleshacker.com and head to the podcast tab. You'll find the podcast on iTunes or Google Play or Spotify. I think anywhere that you find podcasts, you'll find our podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your peers on LinkedIn, Twitter, or elsewhere. If you want to get in touch with me, find me on Twitter at Sam F. Jacobs or on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash in slash Sam F. Jacobs. If you want to learn more about what we're doing at the New York Revenue Collective, go to nycrevenue.net and there's a lead form that you can fill out. Uh, and you can also email me if you want to learn more about Behavox, uh, which is the company where during the day I am the chief revenue officer. In fact, I'm during the day, during the night, during the afternoons, and at any time that I'm needed for Behavox. Um, big shout out to our sponsors for this episode, Aircall, your advanced car center software, 
complete business phone and contact center, 100% natively integrated into any CRM, and Outreach, a customer engagement platform that helps efficiently and effectively engage prospects to drive more pipeline and close more deals. I'll see you next time.